Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. It is a classic pro wrestling podcast where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. I am very much, very much looking forward to this show. It's one that we had scheduled a couple of months ago and schedules got conflicted. But before I get to it, I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. If you're just join Facebook. Search Stick to Wrestling, get in the group. It's a lot of fun. It's not just wrestling talk. It's mostly wrestling talk and a lot of really cool, intelligent dudes hanging out there. Uh, also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, just search John McAdam. Follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. I don't strictly stick to wrestling, but I think it's a a good follow. And uh, I am recording this on Monday, July 24th. One quick question. Twitter, what the hell are you doing? And with that, I want to bring on our sometimes co-host, Steve Generelli. Steve, how are you? Uh, I'm actually finding it cold, but uh, I think you'll do the heavy lifting this week, John. You'll get me through this show. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry you're not feeling well. And I'm sorry. I actually stole your Facebook thunder, I think. <laughs> About regarding what? <laughs> I, I, I think you mentioned a couple of weeks ago, yeah, let me introduce the Facebook thing. And I bring up my notes right before we start rolling. I just go with the notes and I stab you in the back. No, it's it's okay. But but just the, because you mentioned that, uh, Mark Rowland was uh, talking about the- Mark uh, Rock and Rowland. The potential Hulk Hogan versus Abdul the Butcher feud in 1985. WWF. Uh, SK Lee was talking about the potential of a Roddy Piper versus Muhammad Ali feud at WrestleMania 2. And lastly, Dan Moreland paid homage to the 35th anniversary of They Live. They Live is a really good movie. It is prophetic. Roddy Piper plays Roddy Piper, so he didn't have a big movie career, but he was actually good in the movie, I thought, Steve. And, and Keith David, who's his, kind of his uh, partner in the film, uh, he actually ended up doing voiceovers on some WWE documentaries about 30 years after the movie. It's just kind of interesting. I, I had no idea. Thank you for letting me know that. And yeah, you get to, if you're in the Facebook group, you get to find out cool stuff like the WWF was close to bringing in Abdullah the Butcher, I want to say 1989, and they were going to do with him basically what they did with the Sheep Herders. They were going to um, totally recast him as, from what I heard, this kind of out-of-touch disco guy from the 1970s, but obviously it never happened. Yeah, I, I had heard it was going to be like more like a... Uh, um brother love uh, maybe he would have got the job instead of pritchard who knows who knows but i mean brother love came from brother ernest angel from the old memphis territory uh in 1988 but anyway i've been looking forward to doing this show we're going to talk about the florida championship wrestling from 1983 40 years ago and who better to speak about uh, to speak with about that than barry rose barry thanks for returning Absolutely, John. And first off, let me take all the heat. 
We did have this scheduled, uh, I believe it was like towards the end of January. And uh, I reached out and I said, John, this is going to be tough because I was actually moving. I, I, as everybody knows that listens to at least Breaking Kayfabe, uh, I had gotten divorced a couple of years ago and was living in an apartment on my own. And uh, in that time, I met somebody and uh, I've been with her, I guess I've been with her for about a year and a half. And uh, I moved in with her at the end of January. So the delay in this show, it's all on my shoulders. It's all my fault. I cannot accept that answer, sir, because it is now July and we've had, we should have had better opportunities to, to bring you on. I mean, anniversaries and stuff get in the way, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to finally have you, man. Yeah, and I'm excited too. And it's when you reached back out and asked, I it took me about a second to say, absolutely, John, I would love to. I loved my last uh, my last time on the show, spending time with you, talking. Uh, you know, it was just between the wrestling, the Twilight Zone stuff. It's a lot of fun, and I do listen to you guys every week, so I'm a fan as well. Well, thank you. I cr- frequently listen to uh, Breaking Kfab, Breaking Kfab, yeah, uh, your <laughs> podcast with Jeff Bowdrin, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, we're going to have an extra inning session where we talk about uh, Breaking Kfab. But Barry, let our let our listeners know for those who don't know. How like your history as a wrestling fan? You grew up in Florida, and you started watching that product about when? Yeah, so I grew up in the state. I born and raised in uh, Miami Beach, Florida, and my dad took me the first time, nineteen seventy one, and I was a little kid, and I had no idea what I was seeing, what to expect, and all that stuff is a little bit hazy. And I was probably 72 into 73 where I started to understand what was happening and these memories. And I think we started going weekly in 73. So it was every Wednesday night uh, we would go. And my dad was, you know, he's a great dad, first off, rest in peace, dad. Uh, but he was such a great dad. He worked at Levitt's Furniture Stores. He was the general manager of You'll Love It at Levitt's. And he would work 50 or 60 hours per week, then come home and and what did he do? He would take his son to go see professional wrestling. So he always made time and it kind of became our thing. You know, growing up in, in Florida, Miami Beach, we didn't have a lot in regards to professional or organized sports, right? We had the Miami Dolphins. We had the ABA for a couple of years in the early 70s. We had college sports, but we didn't have much else. So for us, wrestling became our thing that we could do every Wednesday night. As I got older, my dad started taking me to West Palm Beach on Monday nights and Fort Lauderdale on Friday nights. And there were literally months where I would see wrestling three times a week with my dad. And I loved my dad. So it wasn't like, shit, I got to go with my dad, right? It was like, my dad was my best friend. So to me, that that was the greatest thing. And, uh, and Florida was such a great territory above all else because Florida, you had access to the wrestlers. And when I say that, all of the wrestlers, with the exception of just a couple, Dusty was probably a prime example, but Uh, the majority of the wrestlers would come out of the dressing rooms and basically watch the matches. You could go up, you could get autographs, you could get photos. And I don't know if you've ever seen some of the photos I've posted, but I probably have 
200 photos of myself as a kid with different professional wrestlers. And I didn't realize at the time, I thought this is the way it was, right? Like if I'm doing it, every other fan in the world is doing it. And as I understood later in life, not every territory gave you that access. So I really was fortunate. I think it at some point in the 70s, I realized just how fortunate I was, but I can look back on my childhood and say, man, I really was blessed. That's awesome. Now, did, did they keep the heels away from you guys, or did the, did the heels pose for pictures? So they did as well, and it was uh, there were separate dressing rooms. Uh, at least I should say there were separate entrances. I don't know if there was a separate dressing room, and I don't think that there was. But the entrances, you had the heels to the left, and then probably two hundred feet where the baby faces would be. So you know, if I saw heels coming out, I would go over and I would get photos. And uh, I've got a photo. I've got a bunch, but I've got a photo with uh, Mr. Sato, who later became the great kabuki and it you know just a great photo tank patton's a great photo i have tank patton rest in peace was a mid-card to prelim heel for us but i went up i said you know i was like a little kid mr patton can i take a photo with you you know all goofy and <laughs> probably shitting my pants at the time and uh he had a cigarette in his hand and uh he put the cigarette between his two fingers got me in a headlock and my friend took the photo which i still have so that's tremendous uh, everybody did yeah i don't think and i'm going back and i don't think a lot of the heels refused photos like in you know i I don't the only person you know i don't want to get off on this but the only person that was ever really really rude to me was the biggest baby face in the state of florida and possibly the world so you know who that was you always hear that stories like the biggest the biggest baby face attraction is the guy who has no time forever for anyone in any territory it's the heels who are the nice guys in real life and it's always been that way. And it's that was something that that as I got older, but still a fan, you know, in the maybe the early 80s, I really understood that the heels would actually make, you know, they would joke, they would have fun. But there was this arrogance and ego to a lot of the baby faces and Dusty Rhodes, who I'm referring to, you know, it, a lot of people, especially in the state of Florida, people grew up loving Dusty and idolized Dusty. And even if you weren't a pro wrestling fan, you knew who Dusty Rhodes was if you lived in Florida. He, he transcended wrestling in every regard with that uh, his legacy is was protected at the time and to some degree still is but i got to tell you i i didn't just see one instance i had two or three personal instances but i saw stuff that you know that i at times i was like i you know what a dick like i just couldn't believe it it just i saw him almost knock over a kid in a wheelchair who was saying dusty can i get your autograph and he literally almost walked just knocked this kid over in a wheelchair and and fans that saw that started booing him at the time <laughs> you know john, john this might be a good segue um uh, back when uh, Barry and, of course, Jeff were doing the show, uh, Breaking Kayfabe, there was an episode where I actually reached out to these guys. And uh, uh, Barry really, he went above and beyond. I, I just asked a question. I said, do you guys have any memories of attending the Wrestle Reunion here in Tampa? This is back in 2005. And uh, I went and, I, and I, I met Jeff that day very briefly. And uh, I didn't know Barry at the time, and I, but I know a lot of our 605 uh Guys like Scott Cornish was there. I think Howard Baum was there. Uh, so I just wanted to ask Barry if he could just kind of recap uh, what his memories of that day was. And I think you'll enjoy this, John. 
Yeah. And uh, Howard was there and I was there. I was actually living in Orlando at the time working for Universal Studios. So for me, it was a quick drive across. I think I was there in less than 90 minutes. But the South Florida contingent, which was Howard Baum, uh, Jeff was there, Greg Good, Dave Flaherty, they all made it in attendance. And I've known those guys for years. So being able to spend time with them was great. But I showed up at the hotel early and I was there, I don't know, I think I was there right around noontime on, uh, and I think it was Friday uh, was the day that things were kind of getting set up. So I saw a lot of the people, a lot of the wrestlers arriving. So the two things I saw that immediately struck me immediately, I was in the bar and it, I, I don't think I was drinking. I'm not much of a day drinker, so I don't think I was drinking. But I was in the bar, and I was probably talking to a, somebody, a friend or somebody, and Dusty Rhodes was there. And Dusty – I don't – you know, and I definitely don't want to turn this into a Let's Bash Dusty episode. But Another Let's it, Bash Dusty episode. <laughs> it just – I, you know what it is? It almost becomes low-hanging fruit, and I don't want to go there because, you know, it's like – Come on, everybody else has done that. But Dusty was never the warmest guy, even in these types of situations. There, you know, and I guess if you know him and you're friendly, because people who knew him and and some people really loved him that knew him. So, but he was in the bar and the missing link showed up. (laughs) Now, I had no idea who the missing link was because first off, I got to tell you, he was one mean looking motherfucker. And this is 2005. So I'm assuming his wrestling career long over at this stage, but he still looked like the missing link without the makeup, but big and bulky. And I remember looking at his hands and I don't think I had ever seen hands like they, they looked like anvils. Like he (laughs) literally, if he started clubbing you, it was over. So I'm there. And all of a sudden the link, and again, I didn't know who it was says dusty roads, fat fucking slob. (laughs) Couldn't work a lick piece of shit. He starts calling dusty every name in the book and Dusty is looking at him and Dusty's I'm I'm this probably not the first time Dusty ever encountered something like this Dusty's handling it and going yeah hey how you doing good to see you just like that <laughs> like like easy going and I thought for sure the link was going to go for him and I I guess there was real heat there and I don't know where that heat was coming from but missing link was not joking around he was dead serious they did not hug when this was over I think Dusty got up and walked away if I remember correctly but I was really shocked because in front of everybody link went for it and he he did not hold back the other thing that that I remembered. I had been there again early that day. So I was watching everybody come in and uh, Sabu was an interesting one because Sabu at the time was married to this little Asian, little Japanese girl. And uh, Sabu, and she appeared to be very prim and proper, but that's probably not the correct phrase, but very straight laced. And Sabu is literally chain smoking joints. <laughs> out in the parking lot like it's you know he he's done with one the next one's fired up so he's out there but uh at that stage dusty came in and dusty got you know he got some claps and but it was nothing crazy and uh within an hour now we're in the lobby within an hour bruno san martino shows up and i gotta tell you i never heard 
the the ovation. No one else that entire weekend got the ovation that Bruno got. And it was to watch fans run over to him immediately. And this is what I thought was beautiful. Fans were running over to Bruno and couldn't even speak. And it was, you know, Bruno, I, I, I grew up in New York or Pennsylvania and I, my, you know, they, they couldn't even get it out. <laughs> and Bruno had the biggest smile on his face and he put his hand on this guy's shoulder and said, I'm so happy you came today. And, you know, watching Dusty again, let's best Dusty, right? Watching Dusty essentially just not give a shit about fans and watching Bruno kind of calm this guy down who was so excited was such a moment for me. But I, I know that Steve, Steve re- remembered this. It literally was like the Pope had just walked into the hotel. There was, he was revered like I have never seen. The amazing part, this took place in Tampa. I'm going to assume between Tampa and the surrounding areas, Tampa, Lakeland, St. Pete, the TV studios, the Sportatorium, Dusty probably wrestled somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 times. Bruno, to all of his credit, worked the state of Florida twice. 1963 and 1975. And that's it. The ovation that Bruno got completely overshadowed Dusty. I always thought that was kind of surprising. It it is surprising. It's not completely surprising because I know there are a lot of Northeast uh, transplants in Florida. But I mean, Dusty was Dusty in Florida. But maybe you know, maybe it's that Dusty. You've seen him enough times, like Bruno. You're only see this is the first time you've ever been in the same building as Bruno Sammartino. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think part of it too. It, you know, because I always look back on that day. That was a lot of fun, wasn't it, Steve? It was, it was, it was off the chain. It was incredible. I mean, it, they were all there. Jack Briscoe, Bill Watts, uh, Harley Race. I mean, you can go on. Every big name you could think of, with the exception of Andre and Randy Savage and Hogan. I mean, those were the only three, I, I think, that weren't there. Yeah, and Andre had already passed at that stage. But Hogan and uh, and Savage hadn't. I don't know if they were. They were probably working for a major company. I don't know. But. The end result at that stage, to me, that was, you know, and my fan fest that I I ran were different. They they were more of the chance to get to talk to wrestlers and meet and greets and stuff like that. But as from a fan perspective, that fan fest may have been the greatest value that I ever (laughs) saw because there literally had to be 50 to 60 wrestlers. And it was you know, you want to get your shit signed, you brought it. And I, I remember standing in line with Roddy Piper and I'm like, Hey, Mr. Piper, can you sign this? And he goes, kid, what kid? I was like 40 years old kid. What else you got at that stage? Right. So, uh, it just a lot of fun. And I just had a blast. That was such, such an amazing thing. But what I was going, where I was going with it was I, I also wondered if a lot in attendance that day were were smart fans as opposed to fans right off the street. Because I do think fans off the street would have lost their shit seeing Dusty Rhodes, <laughs> right? But I, the smart fans are going to look at Bruno in a different light, so – yeah. I mean by 2005 if you were a fan you were a smart fan. I mean it was all it's it was all out there for you to peruse. Yeah, it which it, it is true, but you know it's it is funny. There there are uh and I guess Facebook and Twitter and things like that, but in 2005 we didn't have a lot going. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. There were message boards. I believe the Wrestling Classics message board might have been in existence. Kayfabe Memories was in existence, actually. 
But other than that, that was about it, right? Like, where were you going to get, you know, all your smart insider information? Uh, I remember talking to fans that were there and they had no idea. And I was a big kayfabe memories guy. They had no idea that kayfabe memories even exist. So I, I get your point about the smart fans, but I think as you enter in some of these smaller pockets, and certainly Tampa is a major metropolis, but you start heading out, you know, like Gibtown and some of these smaller towns that are very close to Tampa. And it's, you know, it's still 1975 out there to a lot of those people. As someone who lives in New Hampshire, I know what you're saying. (laughs) You go north of Manchester and yeah, it can be 1975 again. Right. (laughs) But anyway, Barry, this has been like a great conversation so far, but um, I do want to get to wrestling in 1983. You were were still a big fan in 1983 and you were, uh, I mean, you'd been a fan for a long time, 12 years. I was. And I got to say, I I really stayed – like an insane fan, which means, again, going two or three times per week until 1981. And John, you'll like this reference. My first real serious girlfriend in 1981. I was 17 years old. I was madly in love. And uh, that seemed a lot more enticing to me than it did, uh, you know, going to see wrestling all the time. But I think we broke up after six or seven months. And I was right back to going to seeing wrestling. And at that stage, I, I I had a social life, but I always incorporated wrestling into my life as well. So I was I was still going in '83. You, you would you will love this reference. First of all, first of all, I couldn't picture going to wrestling two or three times a week. I don't think. I mean, if I was 16, yeah, I, I would do it until I got tired of doing it. But it's funny how, you know, it was kind of backwards. Like, you know, my girlfriend's got stuck being on the couch between 6.05 and 8.05 every yeah. Saturday. <laughs> yes. Like, I, I ain't stopping watching this. Get, grab me a sandwich. Anyway. Uh, I did. Well, I did that. That that was, I, I, that was my next, I shouldn't say my next, but uh, two relationships after, which was a very serious relationship. She, I got her into wrestling. It was the only, I was married for 22 years. My ex-wife would never watch wrestling, but I was able to get this one girl where we would watch 605 and then we would watch uh, Mid-South and we would watch World Class at like 11 o'clock at night. (laughs) So it was, uh, and that was a great relationship. I got to tell you. Steve, I'm going to get you in on this in a minute, but um, I mean, for me, I, I don't think I ever, you know, when I was married or had any girlfriends, like no one was into the wrestling at all, but it was always like, okay, you can go watch that and I'll watch Oprah or whatever movies on. And it, it worked out, you know, Steve, how about you? How did this all work for you? Well, uh, my dating days in the 80s, 90s uh, really don't need to be discussed, but uh, but as far <laughs> as uh, right now, I have the best wife in the world. She watches Dark Side of the Ring with me. She watches Tales from the Territories. She actually enjoys those shows. Uh, we don't really watch real real wrestling too often because the current wrestling product, I'm not really much of a fan, but she, she enjoys those historic wrestling shows. That's good. That's that's good. I mean, yeah, you know, you make it all work out. And if you had that girl who's just like, I'm not, yeah, I'm not partaking in this. There's another girl out there. It works out. There you go. All right. 1983 comes in right when September 25th, 1982, Dusty Rhodes has to leave Florida for 90 days. He lost a loser leaves town match to Kevin Sullivan. 
and suddenly a new superstar wrestler appears, the Midnight Rider. <laughs> what were your thoughts on that whole thing? It, it was a good angle. You know, 82 into 83 was kind of a – there was a change. Yes. And I want to say there was a change that started in 81, and that was the booking of Dory Funk Jr., and then it continued. In the 80s, you know, I go back through the 70s, and I'm definitely a kid of the 70s when it comes to uh, pro wrestling, especially CWF, but – I, I always felt like CWF could do little wrong. There were little things that occurred, but for the most part, I, I, you know, I, I, I bought everything that they were selling in a sense. You know, whatever, whatever bait was being used to hook the fish, I bought it. It, it worked on me. And by the eighties, whether it was uh, the fact I was growing up a little bit, you know, I don't want to say maturing, but the fact that I was growing up just a little bit. Or the fact that the wrestling was changing, and I think it was a combination, there was a change. And 82 into 83 was a big one. And I liked the whole Kevin Sullivan thing and, you know, the whole Kevin Sullivan thing and Midnight Rider and all of it. It was great. Kevin Sullivan was really unique at that stage because here was a guy that we had seen in Florida had always been a baby face, but he was not a top tier baby face. This was not a main event baby face. Kevin was mid card at best. And I'm not going off of a talent level. I'm just saying this is the way he was booked. And the last time we had seen Kevin prior to that would have been 1977. Kevin never got above the third match. Wasn't, wasn't teaming with Mike Graham. Mike was now with Steve Kern. And Kevin was third match, and he was doing, I'll say he was jobs 50% of the time. So all of a sudden, having Kevin come back and be the top heel was, it, it was interesting, and it may have taken me a little bit to warm up to that idea. Once he got into full steam, I loved it because we had never really seen anything ever like that. I don't think pro wrestling had ever seen anything really like that previously. So I, I got to tell you, I liked it. I, I liked the fact that Dusty, and again, I was, there was a, a sense of bias towards Dusty. I liked the fact that Kevin Sullivan, who we had thought of as mid-card, could come in, beat Dusty, and Dusty's gone from the state. On a personal level, I really enjoyed that. Well, that's, I mean, that's what we want to hear, you know, like what you liked, you know, I mean, we know what drew and what didn't draw. I mean, Steve, Steve and I are there with you because Kevin Sullivan was in the WWF in 76 and 77 in a jobber to the stars role. And it was weird for me, Steve, when I was reading in the magazines that he was getting a big push in Georgia. I'm like, well, I guess he's gotten a lot better. I, I, was, I was shocked to see him in the magazines and seeing that he had turned heel. I mean, we, we looked at him as the ultimate white bread baby face in the WWF back in the mid-70s. Yeah, the, the uh, kind of short weightlifter guy from Lexington, Massachusetts. <laughs> right. I, I always rooted for him, too. I remember he had one really good TV match. It was him and uh, actually Haystacks Calhoun against uh, Superstar and Koloff. That was really a good TV match to uh, – yeah, you know, they teased the breaking up of uh, Superstar and Koloff, so that was a lot of fun. And yeah, I mean, the, and Kevin, I'm I'm sure Kevin did the honors, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, Kevin did the honors. I'm sure he did. Mm -hmm. All right, yeah, and that's just how they used him up here. And I'm I'm glad that you know he went on to have a huge career. But you know, the loser leave town match and the babyface sneaks back under a mask. It only works 
if the the baby face has been so absolutely screwed um this was you know kind of borrowed from mid-south the junkyard dog came back as stagger lee and now we've got dusty Rhodes coming back as the midnight rider and they do an angle where the Midnight Rider defeats Ric Flair clean in the middle, wins the NWA championship. And Barry, can you tell the audience what happened after that? That was a big card first off, right? That was that was a gigantic card, and he won it. Now, the special referee that night, if I remember correctly, was Bob Geigel. It was Bob Geigel. The president at the time, the president of the National Wrestling Alliance, and Bob Geigel, and this would be the term the dusty finish. And this is probably where it came from, but Bob Geigel made the determination at that stage that he would have to unmask in order to hold the title. The Midnight Rider did not want to unmask, did not unmask, and thus the title had been returned to Ric Flair. So how well was that angle received by the locals? It was, I got to say, this is where I think the dusty magic had really started to slip. And there were, and here's here's the thing, like Florida wrestling, and, and this was part of the excitement of going to seeing wrestling. It wasn't what was always taking place in the ring, right? It was seeing ringsiders you've known for years. It's talking to fans. Eating, you know, Lord knows I used to love to go eat at the Miami Beach Convention Center. Whatever it was, it was the overall experience. But the ringsiders who were already on the bubble when it comes to Dusty, and part of it was this was the changing crowd as well. When I was a kid in ringside, I used to hear about the days when wrestling was real, quote unquote, when wrestling was real. Oh, wow. And and oh, yeah, they would say, you know, if you were here, because I was too young at that stage, but if you were here for the Eddie Graham great Malenko battles, that was all real. That was, they didn't believe that was actually work. They still talk about that in Tampa now, even. Exactly. It was a big deal. And it was, you know, even Jack Briscoe, Jack Briscoe was a real wrestler. Mm -hmm. A lot of the ringsiders saw Dusty as an entertainer. Mm -hmm. We weren't, you know, Jack Briscoe didn't come out and wiggle his ass. (laughs) And, you know, exactly. So it it was a, a, a completely different landscape at that stage. So the ringsiders, they weren't all pro Dusty, which was a very unusual thing. However, if you went, you know, and you hung out in the the back dressing room areas where the wrestlers congregated, where a lot of fans would go to get autographs and stuff, the the average fan still loved Dusty. However, this angle, when the belt had been returned, they were they were a little ticked off. There was a lot of, you know, we know it's Dusty. Why didn't he take off the mask and just and keep the belt, et cetera? So a lot of the fans, I think, at this stage were actually starting. I don't want to say turn on him because that, that seems like that's a little harsh, but they were starting to see the uh, the cracks in the armor. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, Barry, because a few weeks ago we had Christopher, uh, T- we had Todd Goss on the show. And he he mirrored what you said when Dusty moved up to the Mid-Atlantic area in 1984, that, you know, this guy, he's an, more of an entertainer than a wrestler. He's not Ricky Steamboat. He's not Ric Flair. And I'm just, you know, a little bit, wow, surprised um, by, because I'd never heard that before, that the Florida fans were, some of them were a bit taken aback or not completely turned on by that uh, changing of the guard. Yeah, you know, I I think there was a lot of factors to it. You know, and I I think first off, you got to remember Dusty turned in 74. 
he really hit his stride between 75. But I think, I think what put Dusty over the top in Florida was the chase of the NWA title with Terry Funk. And Dusty, again, Dusty was the number one babyface literally from the moment he turned babyface in the state of Florida. But that program with Terry Funk in 76, a really, really pivotal year for Dusty Rhodes as well, between the booking of Jody Hamilton, who really knew how to book Dusty extremely well. So, but my point being, the fans by 84, 83, 84, you're looking nine or 10 years of, of seeing what's essentially the same shtick every week. And Dusty didn't vary the shtick. That's the other thing. Dusty did what Dusty did. And Dusty drew great houses up until a certain point. But by 82 and 83, it was coming down a little bit. And Dusty on top wasn't quite as strong. So I, it, to me, it made a lot of sense. I was tired of Dusty. I mean, I think, you know, I don't even, I think by 77, I was just, I, I always preferred wrestling as well. I liked to brawl, but I, I like to see guys wrestle. The problem with Dusty, a lot of times it was, Dusty was to the state of Florida, what the Sheik was to Detroit, Michigan. You knew what you were going to get. You knew how long that match was going to go. You, you know, with the Sheik, you knew the pencil and blood were going to make an appearance. With Dusty, you knew he was going to bleed. Good chance his opponent was going to bleed. You knew the bionic elbow, etc. You know, you we've seen it a hundred times, a thousand times. So even when you saw the fans in the back, they were, you know, they were tired of Dusty. And I'll tell you the other thing that that I think contributed to it, and he was a real gentleman when I asked him about it, Butch Reed. Butch Reed came in the state of Florida and Dusty was gone. Dusty didn't work Florida for several months. Butch became the top baby face and Butch fucking got over in a big way. And when Dusty came back to Florida, coincidentally, Butch was gone within just a couple of weeks. <laughs> and I think that the demographic, which was primarily at that stage, or I should say, I don't know primarily, but I maybe predominantly, I, I would say, was either African-American or of Haitian descent. And uh, I think there was some sort of turn on Dusty with them as well. Wow. I, you know what? I can see that, though, because it has been said that Dusty, you know, was the, always made himself the number one black baby face wherever he went. And some of you are going, no, that makes no sense. But to him, it did. And I could see him just, you know, sandbagging Butch Reed. And here was the irony of it. Butch Reed, Butch Reed never did anything that was, you know, as we associate sometimes African-American wrestlers in the 70s or 60s between, you know, headbutts and butt wiggling, et cetera, and stuff like that. Butch Reed never did that. Butch Reed was a professional wrestler. He was an incredible wrestler. Butch Reed got over, not really based off the color of his skin. Butch Reed got over on the fact that he was really good at what he did. And I think that I think a lot of the African-American population, the Haitian population, which really increased in the, the 1980s, uh, really took wind of that. Butch Reed was... You know, he just did an incredible job. And I asked Butch about that. We had him on Breaking K Fabe for an interview, which is really maybe one of my favorites of all time. And Butch, to his credit, said, you know, I really don't want to get into all that, which was a, a nice way of telling me I, I it was true, but he didn't really want to comment on it. And I respect that. 
you know, I on the show, I have stated that I think there's an argument out there that Butch Reed would have been a more effective NWA champion than Ric Flair because you've got Hulk Hogan on one channel. You know, hey, you've got Butch Reed on the other channel. And who do you think is going to win in a fight between Hulk Hogan and Butch Reed, Steve? <laughs> Can well be Butch <laughs> Reed, uh, but 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 you know I will say this in the defense of Dusty. I mean, as great as Bruno was, as great as Jerry Lawler, as great as Hulk Hogan, um, you know, if Bruno and and Hogan had to work the same towns every week, I mean, they were beloved guys. But uh, I think Dusty did as good as anybody, you know, to have that same schedule week in week out. I mean, uh, you have to give it give the double his due. I mean, he did a remarkable job all those years. That, Absolutely. That's an excellent point. Absolutely. And let me let me also say I would never I would give Dusty credit for everything that he deserves and he does deserve. And there was a period, again, I, I would say the second half of the seventies he did. His power in the state of Florida started to wane in the eighties. And and when we hit that certain level, again, I think eighty two was very, very pivotal. Uh and there was a resurgence. Kevin Sullivan with Dusty, definitely Blackjack Mulligan and Dusty, you know, that that for a while popped the houses and did it. But I think that I think fans who had been seeing the shtick for seven or eight years were able to see through it at that stage. You know, it feels like in 1983, a lot of wrestling promotions were, were going through that. Like, you know, Dusty had peaked in Florida. Bob Backlund had peaked in the WWF. Junkyard Dog had peaked in Mid-South, you know, and sometimes it's just the way wrestling runs. You know, you have that top guy, Bruno Sammartino and Jerry Lawler, probably being the lone exceptions where you have that guy. He, he's the top guy for four or five years, maybe six or seven years. And people just get tired of the same thing. Yeah. It's, I don't know if that was to me or Steve, but yeah, they, they do get tired of the same thing. And again, you can, you can go with the chic in Toronto and Detroit because it was literally the same thing. And you look at some of those numbers in, in Toronto, right? They were drawing like 10,000, right? Like monthly drawing 10,000. And what were they getting? They, you know, they were getting seven minute chic matches and that's it. But th- this whole, this whole, you know, mystery and this whole thing had been built up. Who's going to beat the chic? Will this be the, the month that the chic gets beaten? Does it happen? And I think partly, I think, and this, Steve, this kind of goes back to what you just said, is that, you know, I, I think if Dusty had been monthly in Florida, maybe it had gone on longer. I'm right. not quite sure. Mm-hmm. But seeing it week after week, was it was tough. Yeah, I think Florida, generally speaking, was a well-booked group, and they kind of knew how to rotate Dusty in and out sometimes. But, I mean, Dusty, you know, if you would ask me at any point between, you know, 1975 when I first started watching even just a little bit uh, until, like, 1984, who's the top guy in Florida? Dusty Rhodes, no questions asked. Sure. It would look. I, I, you know, it, one of my obsessions, and I should say I do have a couple, but is championship wrestling from the state of Florida. And if you go back, Eddie Graham, Jack Briscoe, Dusty Rhodes, Barry Windham, these are the biggest baby faces ever to work the state, and they all had good runs. They all had runs that went on for several years. But I think Dusty eclipsed them all. And again, not my favorite, but call, you know, giving the devil his due, what Dusty did really was incredible in the state of Florida. It really was. And, you know, this isn't, you know, another Dusty bashing uh, show. I mean, you know, when he came to New York, he got over like crazy. He was over like crazy yep. in Georgia, too. Everywhere he went, the formula worked. 
I want to ask you, Barry, what what did it feel like in 1983 when you turn on wrestling and you see Harley Race is once again the NWA World Heavyweight <laughs> Champion? So, t- yeah, and I loved Harley Race, and Harley Race brought to me an air of legitimacy. By 83, Harley had slow, he had gained weight, he had slowed down tremendously. And Harley, you know, Harley was never a speedster in the ring, right? Harley was known as a guy that would come out, he was kind of slow and methodical, but he breathed legitimacy. You believed it, it was Harley. It was Johnny Valentine. It was the two guys to me that were very similar in a lot of ways. Slow, methodical, but legitimate. You believed what they were doing. By 83, the luster was off. Harley is world champion in 83, in my opinion, didn't work at all. You know, someone asked me on the Stick to Wrestling Facebook page, or it might have been Twitter. I think it was Twitter. Well, who do you think would have been a better choice for that six-month run? And uh, Barry, I think Barry and Steve, I think you're both with me. I didn't know it was going to be a six-month run. I was just <laughs> like, oh, my God, it's 1977 all over right. again. When are we going to get something new? Right. And that, that's a good point, too, because, again, the benefit of hindsight, right, is always going to be super clear. If we knew it's a six-month run, of course give Harley the title. It's six months. It's Harley Race. It's out of respect we do that. Butch Reed, and you you said it and I said it, it we know why Butch Reed didn't get the title. Missed opportunity. I think we can clearly look back now and say if Butch Reed had everything going for him. But more importantly, fans believed Butch Reed. Fans bought into Butch Reed. Would have been a great choice. I Yeah, I mean, and some of you are saying, wow, a better choice than Ric Flair? I mean, maybe, because the, uh, once again, Hulk Hogan's on the other channel. Yeah, I agree. I, I got a question for Barry. Uh to me, I'm looking at 83 and a lot of the matches, and you see a lot of the uh, older veteran guys that came through, like Ox Baker, Ernie Ladd, Mark Lewin, Blackjack Mulligan, Bobby Duncombe, Angelo Mosca, and you had a lot of younger guys, too, like Scott McGee, Jake Roberts, Jimmy Garvin, Terry Allen. Uh, what, what my question is, is uh, with Eddie Graham, do you, think, do you think he may have just like given – Dusty too much power and too much authority because I kind of think, you know, toward the end, uh, before, before Eddie's passing to me, it seems like he, he put so much on Dusty's lap, gave him so much autonomy. And I just think that the, maybe over time, just the quality, quality control had gotten lost a bit. Oh, can I jump in really quick? In my notes, lots of weird slash not very good heels. Leroy <laughs> Brown, Bobby Duncombe, Zambui Express, Adrian Street, Angelo Mosca Sr., Joe LaDuke. It's like, okay, where are the guys who are actually good? So <laughs> so what's interesting, There's this is going to be a, a multi-point answer on that one. Mm-hmm. I like those. Dusty was doing the booking. Dusty was recycling a lot of what he knew and what had worked for him previously. Hence, Joe LaDuke and Ox Baker. And Ox Baker loved Ox Baker as a gimmick, but he shouldn't have been near a ring in 83, right? Like at all. And even Joe LaDuke, who was, I think, one of the great heels, gained a lot of weight and he was not himself in 83. Leroy Brown was a guy that we had had in 79. But if you look, with the exception of Angelo Mosca I th- and a- Adrian Street, actually, as well, everybody else had been in the state. 
as far as the heels. So a lot of these guys, Dusty was recycling because he had success with them, you know, four years earlier, 10 years earlier, whatever it may be. So he's that that's where he's at. The other aspect, which I always found interesting, if you look at Dusty's booking, one of the big things with his cards in 83, these were five match cards. This was a completely brand new concept to the state of Florida. We generally had anywhere between seven and nine matches, eight eight being the median. And out of that, two of those would be tag matches. So you had two tag matches, six singles matches. This was our formula. All of a sudden, in 1983, we're getting five-match cards Generally, two or three of those are tag matches, but it was very bizarre. Plus, the matches were also going longer. I don't think it it really worked with the fans. I as much as I you know as much as it could have worked, I don't think it worked. Do you think it was a cost cutting measure? I don't think so because again, if you look, I'm I don't think so. He would still have two to three tag matches. Some of those were even six man tag matches. So at that stage, he's got, you know, if he's got two singles, that's four, that's 10. He's got 14 wrestlers on a card. He's not like he's saving a lot of money. So I don't think so. I think it was his version of what he wanted to do. And uh, I just don't think it was overly well received because once Dusty backed off of the booking, we kind of went back to our old formula again. Okay, that makes sense. So what what did you think about Mark Lewin, who was a big star in Florida at one point, walk walking out of the ocean <laughs> and becoming the purple haze? I always I always thought that was crazy because you, I would think a lot of people including yourself Barry would be like that's Mark Lewin, what is he doing? Well, there it, it wasn't hidden. Uh, I think when it first happened, they said the purple haze. But within a couple of weeks, he's on television. They're playing Thriller. They picked two songs, which I always thought were interesting for for the purple haze. One was Thriller by Michael Jackson, <laughs> which that's you know that that to me makes no sense. Then they were playing the Twilight Zone theme. Do, 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 do. You know, it's bizarre, but they would refer to him or Gordon did as the Purple Haze Mark Lewin. They eventually dropped Mark Lewin and just called him the Purple Haze, but they weren't trying to pretend that it wasn't Mark Lewin. They they were just, you know, it was just a little funny in the beginning the way that they did it. Oh, no, I, I'm just saying that, you know, he was a recognizable guy. Um, and again, I get the Kevin Sullivan gimmick that, you know, he is hypnotize Mark Lewin or whatever and how he has him behaving like this. I was just wondering, you know, what the the crowd reaction was. I don't think it was, honestly, so the other aspect is a lot of the demographic had changed and uh, you can go to political and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get deep into it, but a lot happened uh, between 1980 and 1982 in Florida and the demographic of who was going to see wrestling was different. So I remembered Mark Lewin. He was a baby face the last time we had seen him, which was 1975. So we hadn't seen him in all those years. Lewin was a solid guy though. You know, he was, uh, it, to me, I, I think he was better as the purple haze than he was as Mark Lewin. You know, I just, for whatever reason, it, it didn't, it didn't strike me as odd. What struck me as odd was a couple of years later when, when Roop showed up and shaved half his head <laughs> uh, and put on make that struck me. That's when I was like, Oh, this is, this is almost sacrilegious at this stage. 
Yeah, Bob Roop, I do remember that. Uh, Maya Singh, is that right? Maha Singh, it was uh, very bizarre. We were scheduled, so Bob has been, Bob was at two of our fan fests, two or three of our fan fests in Florida, and we were scheduled to have him at uh, a fan fest, geez, I guess it would have been about a year ago, and uh, Bob was going to do the the Maha Singh gimmick for the first time ever, and he wasn't going to shave half of his head. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, I would have some serious power if I could have convinced Bob to do that, but I didn't even didn't even approach it. But with that, Bob is eighty, so it wasn't like there was a lot up there to begin with. But he was going to do the makeup uh, and everything else, and we did have Kevin Sullivan that was going to be there, so uh, it would have been really interesting. But yeah, it's uh, yeah. Sadly, I don't think it'll ever happen at this stage. But the Roop thing was shocking. Lewin, not as bad. I, I think what you know what was shocking probably was to me was Kevin Sullivan slapping a woman on television. Right, that was a big deal. Oh, I, I remember that. I, I you know I didn't see this it happen, but I eventually got a tape of it, and it's like you know, wow. Yeah, it's I that struck me as as wrong, and uh, as I was watching. Uh, Dark Side of the Ring, uh, and I, I watched a succession of Dark Side of the Rings over the last week, and uh, it might have been uh, Tales from the Territory, excuse me, where they were doing it on Crockett, and they showed Dusty slapping Baby Doll a couple of times, but really hard slaps. And my guess is that's eighty five or eighty six at that 85. stage. Yeah, that's uh, you know, and I just I got to be honest that that just rubs me the wrong way. I don't care. I, there's something about that that I just always found. Even back in those days, I just found that extremely creepy. No, we no one's into that. All except for the, all the fans going crazy over it. What am I saying, <laughs> Barry? What was the name of the young lady that Kevin Sullivan slapped? Uh, that was well, it was Luna Vachon, wasn't it? Oh, he, okay. He Was slapped Luna. Yeah, well, so he did. He had he had Winona Littleheart. Ah, that's the one I was looking for. Yeah, so what were they calling her? Oh. Cindy Lou. Cindy Lou. In Look 1984, at that. they were calling her Cindy Lou. <laughs> Go ahead, Barry. I'm yeah. sorry. So he uh he slapped her. Winona Littlehart, he slapped Luna Vachon, obviously. Uh, and maybe even laid a hand on his wife. Uh, that I'm not even sure about. But you know, Kevin was it was revolutionary. And I don't know if you've ever had the chance to ever speak to Kevin. I know he's facing some health issues, but he's still out there and still making fan conventions. But he is a super friendly and approachable guy. And I remember, you know, even with something as sensitive as Nancy, we had a conversation. I didn't bring it up. He brought it up. And once the door was opened, I I figured I would go for it. But he he was an open book. And I really appreciated that. And I asked him about, uh, about, you know, slapping Luna Vachon and things like that. And he said, and he was very honest. He goes, I got to tell you, I never felt entirely comfortable. This was part of an angle. However, Luna told me I had to do it. And I, at that point, I was like, what do you mean Luna told? And Luna said, she said, Kevin, this is going to get incredible heat for you. This is going to get incredible heat for the angle. This is going to draw money. She goes, I want you to fucking slap me. So I always thought that was interesting. I don't know about, about Winona Littleheart, but I'm guessing probably a similar conversation. I can totally see Luna Vachon saying that. Kevin, right. let's make this work. Lay it in. Yeah. All right. So they had an angle that I thought was great in 1983. Well, let's start with 
Dusty Rhodes, Ron Bass, and Blackjack Mulligan now own a ranch together. What could possibly <laughs> go wrong, Barry? <laughs> Nothing could go wrong. How much fun, though? And this this is kind of like, you know, like me, comedy, and I, I'm always very iffy with comedy and wrestling. For the most part, I've never been a huge fan, but sometimes there are certain aspects of it I like. This was one of those things I liked, the saga of the family. I loved it. I loved it. It was it was so hokey. It was so unbelievable. None of it made sense really when you stopped and thought about it, and yet it worked. It absolutely worked. I'm I'm with you. Wrestling and comedy don't always go together, but this was one of the instances where it totally did and and JJ Dillon was just phenomenal in his role as a straight man. He's talking about, you know, how a snake bit him and contrary to uh, other rumors the snake didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, have you seen any of this stuff? I, I did. I, I mean, uh, I, I guess I prefer some of them, just the more wrestling of, of CWF. I, I thought JJ was way over the top. It was a little too cheesy for me, honestly. Okay. Now, of course, these three guys own a ranch together. And then <laughs> which, there is- which would you stop and think about that? That <laughs> even on its own, that they own this ranch and we're all living on this ranch together. <laughs> Sounds like be- Bonanza. Yeah, exactly. But they're not related. It's just the whole premise <laughs> of it. And, and you, you just said the key word. This was as cheesy as you could possibly get. <laughs> but it was so fucking glorious in this cheese, you know? That's what made me love it, Steve. <laughs> So then Harley Race is defending the title once again against Dusty Rhodes and Ron Bass has been appointed as the special guest referee. Barry, what could go wrong and what did actually go wrong? So I thought this was great. And I got to tell you, I was never the biggest Ron Bass fan. Ron, uh, just for what, you know, we all connect, right, with somebody and for whatever reason, you know, that's not a knock on Ron. It's just, I was just never a huge Ron Bass fan. And I thought his heel turn was the way heel turn should be. And essentially, Ron was the special referee for a match uh, where Dusty was challenging for the NWA World's Heavyweight title. And Ron turns on Dusty and they, you know, they do the whole thing. You know, Dusty, Ron, why? Why would you do it? Ron just levels him. Uh, (laughs) And then they do the interview. And, you know, a lot of times the, the heel turns... They're not the most logical here, right? Like, you know, you sometimes you really got to grasp in order to try to figure it out. But Ron was, this to me made the most sense. Ron said, I'm the Southern champion. I'm the one that's supposed to be getting the title shot, not Dusty Rhodes. He hasn't even been in the state. You know, they referenced he was somewhere else doing something else. He comes in and gets the title shot. I deserve it. I just thought that was so good. And that right there made me a fan of Ron Bass. I then became a fan. I, you know, they, 40 years ago in Mid-South, they did what I thought was a great heel turn where Butch Reed simply says to Junkyard Dog, hey, I don't care what you've done for me. I want your spot. And I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get it. Ron Bass, the, the thing the thing with Ron Bass is he got that monster, monster push after that. And I'm, I'm a Ron Bass fan. I liked him as a wrestler. I just thought those shoes were too big for him, quite frankly, Barry. 
Yeah, but I got to say it actually worked. And I, I think the reason it worked in the state of Florida was that fans were vested into that angle. It 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 was believable. It worked. And, and Ron was never, you know, Ron was never pushed as the top guy in Florida prior to that. He was always number two, maybe three, you know, might have gone Dusty, Mulligan, Ron Bass like that. And, you know, you could debate, you know, there was guys who came in, but that got Ron over as a heel. And that's where I think it actually worked. Now, Ron is now a heel in Florida, and J.J. Dillon has an agreement with Ron Bass. I loved this angle, Barry, where J.J. Dillon exclusively manages Ron Bass. Or does he? Because there's another manager, Jimmy Holiday, who seems to be taking cues from J.J. Dillon. Do you remember this angle, Barry? I do, and that that's an interesting... Uh... That was an interesting period, first off, right there with with Jim Holiday. And Jim Holiday was the legit brother of Mike Fever. Mike Fever was a guy that had worked, I think, Crockett, worked several southern territories, mostly I doing used to jobs. I back and forth with Mike Fever, believe it Oh, or did not. you really? He, and he told me Jim Holiday was his brother, and I had no idea. But yeah, he it, was a really good guy. Yeah, I think he's since passed on Mike Fever, but... Yeah, but Jim Holiday, I believe, still alive and was running karaoke in Myrtle <laughs> Beach. All right. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I've heard rumors on how Jim Holiday got in the business, and it wasn't from his brother. It's probably best I don't say what those rumors were. So I'll leave it at that. But he was an interesting guy. He was not. He was not the greatest manager, and I, I think I don't think he was a wrestling guy per se. I, I just I, there was I, I just don't see it. He managed the Zambui Express for a while. He was with them. I, I just yeah, I was never, and that's not a, you know, I just don't think he was made to be in that business. He didn't seem to take to it naturally. So I do remember the angle though, and it was kind of uh, vague, and I don't think there was ever this dramatic payoff on it. But they 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 had plans for it, and I'll tell you how you could tell. The weekly program, which was the the arena program, which was published by Jerry Prater, would it was it would foreshadow what was going to happen. So you know, like I, if like Buddy Wolf came in in 1977, and Buddy Wolf is on the front page of the program saying. I, I'm going to collect all the titles in Florida. Well, a week later, Buddy Wolf's your Florida champion. So <laughs> this was a very common theme where if you saw it in the arena program, there was a great chance something was going to take place and something was going to happen. So the front cover of the program has got J.J. Dillon and Ron Bass going, uh, and they're like arguing with each other. What's going on here? What's taking place here? So clearly this angle was supposed to have legs, and I think the legs got cut right off. My assumption, and I don't know this for a fact, I just think they just said, yeah, Jim, we don't need Jim Holiday. They didn't need him. I mean, at the end of the day, they didn't need him at all. I think they just released him, and that was it. It, it seems like that was it. I mean, the angle was, like I said, um, it looked like, you know, J.J. Dillon was kind of using this Jimmy Holiday guy to manage, you know, as a front to manage other wrestlers, which would make you think that this was leading to a Ron Bass turn. The only problem is Ron Bass literally had just turned right. heel. 
Right. I I think, and, and I don't know, but maybe they were going with that. Maybe the original plan was going to be the manager versus manager, stable versus stable or something like that. It would have been interesting, but for whatever reason, like you say, they literally from one week to the next just dropped and was never talked about again. That that makes sense. And you know, I'm really surprised that Eddie Graham would let the person who did the programs in on it so much and be able to drop hints like that. I've, I've never heard that before. That's great. So Jerry Prater was the guy that did the programs, and what a legacy Jerry Prater has. He was the one-man show doing the – and our programs were great. The Grapevine, which started in 1978, uh, but prior to that, he had been doing the programs for probably close to a decade anyways. Jerry would take the photos. He would write every story. So if you ever saw an old uh, Florida program, there's all these different uh, authors in there. There's – uh, Bartholomew C. Appleyard, and J. <laughs> Ralph Hogan. That's all Jerry Prater. Whatever name he came up with, and he would sometimes have five or six different bylines in there. It was all Jerry Prater. He he wrote every article, took every photo, put together the program, and actually mailed them to every uh, every arena as well. Uh, so that was incredible. He worked very, very closely with Eddie. He had been a part of CWF going back to the 60s. So, you know, the program was used literally as the mouthpiece of CWF. What you saw on TV was what you saw, but then you get to the arena and you're able to read a Reader's Digest version of exactly what was taking place. So if there was a program that they wanted to get over between a couple of guys, it was going to be front and center in the arena program for sure. With that, and these were two things I wanted to touch on because you had referenced this earlier, but as I get older, my memory sucks. Eddie by 83 had really stepped back. So when you were saying that you were shocked that Eddie had given all this autonomy to Dusty, you know, it, it, there's no secret here that Eddie was a raging alcoholic by this stage and wasn't really paying attention. Eddie was getting money, but he was wrapped up in investment deals and real estate deals, etc. He wasn't really paying, but I think he trusted Dusty enough to give Dusty the book and say, Dusty, you're running the show. Didn't quite work out. Of all those opponents that Dusty had, the weakest one was maybe the one that would surprise you was Adrian Street. And a lot of it had to do with, and this is not because Adrian Street, obviously, as a wrestler, was great. He was a great heat magnet, and as a shooter, could probably take you know ninety five percent of the guys that were working at that stage, right? But Adrian Street was also, from a stature standpoint, extremely small, right. and we were used to seeing Dusty go up against guys that were six six, Ox Baker, superstar Billy Graham, the Master of the uh, Week. Yeah, it, that's exactly what it was. It was what Hogan did. In a sense, it was the monster of the week. And all of a sudden, here's Adrian. And what 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 hurt with this as well, Adrian came in and uh, the I will say his gimmick got over. There was certainly got a lot of heat in the state of Florida. But the other aspect was Adrian literally, I think, was 5'7 or 5'8. He also was wearing lifts in his boots. And it just, you know, I remember watching him in Miami lining up to take the dusty elbow. And, you know, he was just so small <laughs> on so many different levels that to me it didn't work. And I, while he was up top for maybe two weeks or so, he quickly was bumped down off of the card. 
Adrian Street, yeah, I, I have nothing against the guy personally, but I, I mean, about 20, 20, 25 years ago, like word got out that, yeah, he's a legit hooker. He will he will take out 95% of the guys on the roster, and he's small. Okay, you know, great, good, good for him. He's got a really attractive wife, but he was always mid-card comedy, and he never got over wherever he went. I mean, the first time he got a major push in a big promotion was in Florida in 1983. And they give him uh, Leroy Brown as his uh, bodyguard and JJ yep. Dillon as his manager. So they did everything they could to get him over, but he just didn't, he just never got over. I'm sorry. It, it was, again, it, it was his stature and it, look, it could have been the gimmick, but I, I will say the way the gimmick played in Miami Beach wasn't the way the gimmick was going to play in, say, a city like Tampa. Right. Like that was going to be a little bit different. They're very, very different uh, metropolitan areas. So it, it, Adrian, it was his stature. It literally was the fact he was 5'7", and we were so used to seeing Dusty work with, you know, as Steve said, the monster of the week or the monster of the month. None of that worked. And I remember I remember watching a match in Miami Beach, and I want to say they main evented maybe only once. And it, it was very – it was bizarre because Dusty wasn't doing much. Like he was literally – Going through the motions with no, and this was on. Look again, I can be critical of Dusty, obviously, but he was going through the motions. There was no charisma. He was just doing these basic holds, and it was just very bizarre. Their styles didn't work. None of it worked. And I think they really wanted Adrian to work because, you know, it, it, especially at that stage, as you got into certain cities, he was going to generate some heat. The problem was it, Dusty wasn't the right guy. If you would put him more mid-card Adrian and maybe he's chasing the TV title or something like that, that seems like that would make a lot of sense to me. But I just think that was ineffectual booking and that was Dusty booking. Yeah, and I can see Dusty, you know, maybe he was burned out doing the same thing every week for almost 10 years. And But, you know, back to Adrian Street, I, I don't see him getting over with that gimmick if he's six feet tall. I don't see him getting over with that gimmick if he's six foot four, even though I think that would have been funny. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this hour flies by. There's one other thing I have to ask you before we get into our extra inning segment. One thing I loved about Florida – uh, Barry is that they would create new stars. They would use the championships to create new stars. In 1983, for the first time, uh, Scott McGee gets his first push, uh, winning the Florida title, and Mike Rotunda gets his first push, winning the Southern title. I mean, what was it like seeing these guys like on a big stage, being successful like that for the first time? Sure. Mike Rotundo, the only issue, in my opinion, Mike Rotundo ever had was this lack of charisma. And he was, as a wrestler, he was fantastic. And there was a series of matches. This is a few years later, uh, going towards the late 80s. It was Dusty, I'm sorry, it was Dory Funk Jr. versus Mike Rotundo for the Florida title. And they worked together for uh, several months. It literally was almost the second coming of Briscoe versus Funk, wow. which is obviously what we had, you know, that was something I had grown up on. Mike had it. Scott McGee was interesting. So first off, let me go back to 2003. 
Let me go back to 2003 to thank you, John McAdam, because you provided me with Scott McGee's phone number. I don't know if you're It's 20 years ago, John. Do you believe this? <laughs> 20 years. I can't believe I'm saying it. it's 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you provided me with Scott McGee's phone number. I called Scott McGee. I consider him one of my closest friends to this day. So I, I want to say thank you to, to you because I think I was looking to get an interview, which I did a great interview with Scott. At the same time, we became friends we call each other out of the blue. He is the most down-to-earth human being I've ever met. I just love the guy tremendously. Scott McGee at the time was not somebody that I think I uh, – and, and I think it was the, the stature. Scott is probably 5'7 as well, right? It may be 5'8 max, but I 5'7. And another guy who'll tie you up in a knot. Oh, he's in, he, he could, he's, well, th- and this is where I'm going to go with it too. Scott uh, was a guy that, again, we were used to your Steve Kearns, even though Mike Graham was small in stature, but he was a homegrown guy. We didn't know Scott was a homegrown guy in a sense because he was being the son of Jeff Ports. But, uh, and then if you remember that, I will tell you a funny story about that in about a second. But Scott was a guy that I did not appreciate at the time. However, he did get over. And I can tell you, the women love Scott McGee. He was watching the young ladies congregate by the babyface locker room. Scott McGee was at the very, very top uh, of the list for them. He was super over. But Scott McGee was a guy that could have great matches. And I don't think I – kind of like Bobby Duncombe in some ways. I never appreciated Bobby Duncombe until years later when I was able to watch him. But I went back when Scott and I became uh, friendly, and I went back and I started watching not just his Florida stuff, but I was watching like his Memphis stuff. And then I watched his heel Calgary stuff. Oh, my God. If you've never seen Scott McGee as a heel in Calgary – five stars, like literally as good as it gets. And I've asked him about that. And he said one of the plans uh, for him was that he was in Calgary at the time doing the heel and they were actually going to take him back in the Federation. He was going to go back to the Federation as Garfield Ports and he was going to be a a royal heel, a royal British or UK heel. Uh, And sadly, as we know, he had the stroke and almost died and never really worked again because of that. But I absolutely love Scott. But about five years ago, I guess, I don't know, four years ago, maybe five years ago, uh, Scott and I were having lunch. We were in Tampa and I always made it a point. I visit, and Steve will know, I I visit Anna Maria Island three or four times a year. I Mm -hmm. absolutely love it. And every time I'm down there, I always invite Scott to come and hang out. Scott's a beach guy. Come hang out at the beach. So I'm there. He brings his wife. I'm there with my family and we all go have lunch and we're sitting at a table and I don't know how this got past me, but I said, Scott, how's your dad doing? And he said, I'd have to check because he's six feet under, but I'll get back to you. <laughs> oh, and I, but we, as as wrestlers, that's you know he doesn't miss a beat, right? So I was like, oh, I'm mortified. Like I just put you know open foot, put your fucking foot right in it, right? <laughs> uh, so I'm mortified that I just said that, and uh, and I'm I'm like starting to Scott. I'm so sorry, I you know. And he goes, Oh no no, don't worry about it. He goes, He was a tough old bastard like that. So. Uh, 
you know, it's it's funny with wrestlers and their families as well, because I've had more than one second generation wrestler tell me, you know, that their dad was uh, a tough SOB, but they they don't have a lot of those warm fuzzies like like we may have with our parents, right? They don't have that. So, yeah, but I, I got to say thank you, John. I love Scott McGee. All right. Excellent. It sounds like one of those things where, you know, John, can you get this phone number? Yeah, I'll get the phone number. Oh, you can't get your picture taken with Dusty Rhodes. Yes, I can. That kind of thing. <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, excuse me, Barry, I want to thank you for coming on Stick to Wrestling. The episode is not over, but the, the uh, Florida 83 part of the episode is over. We're going to do an extra inning segment with Barry. And before I, I speak with Barry, I just want to make everyone aware it is, has started raining like crazy here in Nashua, New Hampshire. So if you hear a little bit of rumbling in the background, I apologize. That's just what it's like here in July. Barry, first of all, congratulations on 300 episodes of Breaking K Fabe, uh, your podcast with Jeff Bowdrin. You guys are kind of going into semi-retirement with that. You're you're done with the regular podcast you may jeff says you know you may come out of retirement if something big happens like vince mcmahon dies and you know i I told you before we started i'm not trying to dig up dirt here and but this is something i think you and i are both going to understand because i think this is episode 268 or 269 of stick to wrestling 300 is a lot of episodes it is too and and let me uh i will break kayfabe on your show and I will give you all the dirt on why the show ended. Mm-hmm. There is no dirt. It was, <laughs> it, it is, I think, you know, I, we were talking prior and somebody kind of took us to task saying we weren't being honest and all that. There is no dirt. Look, it, it, Jeff and I, as you and Jeff have been very good friends, John, for 30 plus years, Jeff and I have been very good friends for 30 plus years. This is not, but it got to the point, you know, Jeff's a couple years older than me. I'm going to be 60 in three months and I appreciate it. I know I don't look it, but I am going to be 60 <laughs> and, uh, and Jeff is a couple years older, though he looks much older than I do. And, uh, it just got to the point that Jeff is semi-retired. I'm moving down to Florida shortly. And, you know, am I going to be semi-retired? I might. I, I might. You know, the, Breaking Kayfabe became a weekly responsibility where we were sometimes two to three times per week having to meet up in the middle of the afternoon to record. And it just got to the point after 300 episodes, we were like, we're tired. And look, if we were making a million dollars, we would have kept it up. But you guys both know we, you know, the money's not, uh, it's not, not the motivator here. The money has never been the motivator. It was always the fact, I think for me, it was, it was really the friendship with Jeff. The fact that I could talk to a really good friend of mine. And I always, I always told this story the show was born out of our phone calls. Jeff would call me and he'd go, did you see this fucking movie? Did you watch this, you know, the, this new Mad Max movie? Uh, and, and I go, yeah, it was great. And then we would talk for a half an hour. And then we were like, did you watch, you know, the, the, the latest new Japan match or something? And we said, why don't we just try this with a podcast? Why don't we do it that way? And I initially did not want to do it. 
my son was getting ready to go off to college. He has since graduated uh, at this stage and has a full-time job. But I told Shows you- Shows you how long you've been doing it. Exactly. I Look, I had one kid that was, uh, it was his last year of high school and uh, I wanted to spend more time with him. And I, you know, he was going to go off to college. I had another one in middle school. She's now going to enter her second year. But I told Jeff, I didn't, you know, I didn't really want to do it. And uh, he, he recorded an episode with John Hitchcock. He recorded one with you. And I said, you know what? I actually had so much fun doing it. But at the same time, I don't ever think I was great at doing it. Like, you know, it, Jeff's got a voice. I don't uh, you're, you're not giving yourself enough credit. And you're I appreciate it. not giving yourself and enough I, and I'm, I'm not, not just I'm, saying that. I'm and this isn't a humble that. brag. I, I didn't, you know, I definitely am not fishing for a guy. I don't want to be that guy. But it was, you know, Jeff had it down. Jeff had a voice and a cadence and, and was able to do that. And for me, it was, you know, I like talking about wrestling and I like speaking with Jeff. So it became a natural and the way things evolved you know, we, we really didn't have a format. We just fucking were winging it every week. We would do a top five and halfway through, we would go, what number are we on? Because we couldn't, we weren't bright enough to remember. Uh, was it number three or four? And, uh, and then we added Sweet Lou. And, and that's where I, I think I really started to enjoy and embrace what we were doing. I got to talk to Sweet Lou. I got to talk to Jeff. And then I got to make friends with a lot of people who were our listeners. And I made it a point if I went somewhere out of town, if I went up to Boston or something, I would try to meet up with some of our listeners or down in Florida or even the Carolinas I was doing that. So that that to me really became a lot of what the show was about. But with 300 episodes, I found myself regurgitating the same thing over and over. You know, there's an I'm old adage. I do that. We all do it, John. There's no, there's no getting around it. And Joe Malenko, Joe is great. Joe Malenko, like two years ago, I reached out to Joe and I'm like, Joe, do you want to come on our show? And he goes, yeah. He goes, I have 10 stories. I tell them, tell the same 10 stories <laughs> everywhere I go. I'll come and tell them on your show. And then we had Joe at one of our fan fests. We do this thing called uh, Cup of Coffee. And it's we do it uh, It's for an hour. It's maybe 30 or 40 fans. And we sit and we have coffee and we just talk, we tell stories. And I was like, Joe, will you come? And he goes, yeah, it'll be the same 10 stories I told on your podcast that I always tell. And you know what? He's fucking right. Because I find myself telling this the same 10 stories almost over and over. Maybe a little more than 10, but I found myself saying the same thing. And it was really, we just did a list and it was Carl Stern, Dragon King Carl. And he did the top 200 wrestlers of all time. And I got to tell you, by the end of it, I was saying the same thing about every single wrestler, you know, he shouldn't be this high. He should be lower. And he, yeah, he should be on the list, but I would drop him down. I was like, you know what? We're, we're done, Jeff, right? Like, this is it. <laughs> this is telling us clearly we're done. There is no dirt uh, in any form. We harbor no, and I'm, I'll speak for Jeff on this because again, I talk with Jeff today. We harbor no ill will. We're just tired. We're just tired. I think he wants to spend more time with his wife. Jeff's dog sadly passed away last year and he got a new dog. He wants to just be able to have a little more free time and take it easy. And with all this, I've been juggling, right? Like I got a divorce. I got in a new relationship. 
I travel a lot. I have a full-time job. I have two kids that I just, I, you know, I spend every moment I can with them. And I have a dog. That's really my third child. If, you know, if you know me, my dog Ozzy has been to 50% of the fan fest and I just let him run free in the room. So, you know, it, it gets really hard sometimes, you know, and for us, we would record at like 2.30 on Mondays. And I remember sitting there and going, how the fuck am I going to record today? It's 2.15. I'm on with a client who's ripping me a new asshole. And I'm like, how am I going to be off of this in 15 minutes to record? And then what kind of mindset? What's my frame of mind to record? So at some point we said, you know what? We're done. We're going to do the Patreon as long as we can. But I... You know, I I don't even know how long that's going to go on for. But uh, I will tell you, through it all, Jeff and I will always remain friends. There, this you know, and I don't. Again, I don't know if this guy that was, you know, felt that we owed him an explanation. I don't know if he felt it was something with between Jeff and myself, or maybe uh, Arcadian Vanguard and us. It's not. It just we're just old and tired, John. No one understands what you're saying better than I do, Barry. I mean, no, you know, Sean Goodwin left Stick to Wrestling about three years ago, and I've been, you know, it's been three or four years, and people are like, wow, what happened? What's the real story? Where's the dirt? There isn't any. It's just we couldn't make the schedule work. And I totally get what you're saying. You know, there there is someone out there, Barry, there is at least one person who's like, what's the big deal, man? You sit on your ass for an hour and you talk <laughs> wrestling, right? Yes. But at the same time, you have to be a, a member of a team and make it work. You know, today, I'm the one who picked the time. I'm like, yeah, 4 o'clock Monday, let's do this. Well, guess what? I had to, like, shuffle stuff around because, you know, that's how life is. And I had to make sure I was available to record at 4 o'clock. And it's not always the easiest thing to do. And you've either got to do it, A, every single week, no questions asked, or B, have a long recording session where you get the next week off. And and like I said, it doesn't sound like work. And maybe it isn't work. Maybe it's just the commitment and you get tired of that commitment. I'm like you guys. I mean, we have never missed an episode of Stick to Wrestling. We, we never will. Clearly, you guys will never will. But the day will come where... I just don't want to do it every week anymore. And I just get where you're coming from. It's so tough. It, it, it's, you know, it's, it, a lot of it is, uh, you got to remember, things are great until it becomes a responsibility, right? Like your love is, uh, is great until it becomes your responsibility that you have to do it. And the juggling, I think, became a huge thing for me as well. It's like I really, you know, full-time job and every all this other shit, and I always had to juggle. And, I, you know, there were certain things I had to do and I had to change. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize, too. And, again, I'll, I'll reference this guy that wanted all this dirt and shit, and he, he said something that I You're owed him. You're this dude, man. This is great. <laughs> I am a little pissed. I got to be honest. I'm trying not to be like, we talked about this off and I'm trying not to be, but I am. But well, there's a real sense of entitlement with this cocksucker. And part of it, part of it is he Let used the words something really quick. It, it sucks that I can't use entitled cocksuckers as the, the, the <laughs> name of this show. Brian yeah. won't allow it, but please go ahead. Gotcha. But he, he did say I owed him this and 
anybody that does a podcast, uh, let, let's take it out, with the exception of Jim Cornette, maybe, <laughs> but a lot of other people. Look, John, you get it, and I think everybody, you know, the majority of pod, we're not in this for money. We're not making a lot how of money. How could we be? How could we be? We're not making it. So when somebody tells me I owe them something as I collect my royalty checks for like 20 cents, go fuck yourself. I owe you something, <laughs> right? Like, you got to be kidding me. So I that that really did irritate me. But really what I'm what I'm trying to say with this whole thing is it, it, with John and Steve doing this, uh, it, this is a labor of love. Th- this is not done for any, nobody's getting rich. Nobody's, <laughs> we're barely making beer money at times uh, to be able to do this. This is strictly a labor of love. And any podcaster even the ones that are terrible, and you guys are obviously far from that. This is the best pure wrestling podcast that there is. Thank uh, you. Wow. Which, well, it's true. I mean, I'm not, again, the, you know, the, when it comes to pure wrestling, this is it. This is a labor of love. You know, your hosts aren't sitting here eating uh, fucking, you know, Sevruga caviar on toast points, <laughs> uh, drinking the finest champagne. They're not. This is... You know, this is a labor of love. And the fact that that guys go out of their way on a weekly basis to do it is something that people should be appreciative of instead of trying to take shots and saying you owe them this. And you'll see this all the time on Cornette's deal uh, in in Brian, you know, wait a minute, it's it's Wednesday and the show hasn't dropped. What's going on? Like there's, you know, we owe you, you don't know your shit. When you guys start paying for something, we owe you something, right? Until then, this is free trade. There's nothing happening here. You know what? First of all, I, I listened to your final show, and you did a great job putting into words like how I feel about the people who listen to this podcast. I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm very grateful. Like, let's say the day comes where I approach Brian last. I'm like, Brian, look, I'm just burned out of doing a weekly podcast. Don't anyone think this is around the corner because it's not. But at some point, it's got to happen. You know, I just don't feel like doing it every week anymore. Can we revisit this like i'll just do a podcast whenever i feel like doing a podcast you know joe jackson the musician the guy who's saying um is she really going out with him yes he had an expression and pardon my french people like writing a song is like taking a shit when it's time to write a song it's time and you know we don't always get to do that like hey it's time to record you know scrunch up get that shit out and it's not always easy and like i said the day will come when you know either i mean assuming i don't die which i don't think i'm going to anytime soon you know i'm I'm gonna say hey you know i i feel like i've said everything i need to say and you know i'm burned out of it and i'd like to you know and i hope when when that happens it's not going to be me being like oh my god i can't perform this week i can't do it you know and that's not going to happen but I, I hope i get ahead of it and you know i approach brian and say hey look you know in the coming months can we kind of rebuild or restructure stick to wrestling so that you know i don't have to do it every week but then again i'm always so grateful for that person who says on facebook or who says on twitter you know this is what i look forward to on friday this is what I listen to when I walk my dog on Saturday. So that's, you know, that's the other side of, Hey, it's Wednesday. Where's my podcast asshole. Yeah, it, well, it is. And it's, uh, I'll tell you what kept me going. When we started, I had no idea what was going to happen or take place. And, and I really didn't. One of the things that really caught me off guard was the impact 
you make in people's lives. And that wasn't, again, that wasn't intentional and that wasn't something I was searching or looking for. But Jeff and I, you know, between all we went through with divorces and cancer and moves and being very honest about our lives, and then people started sharing privately with us. And, you know, there were some stories, there were suicide attempts and uh, children that had been lost at a young age, like horrible stories that you wouldn't wish upon your enemy. And I was really, I got to say, I was moved, but I was also a little shook up with it. And I remember uh, showing it to uh, a really good friend of mine one night. I think we were high as kites too, and uh, <laughs> which, which you know, it's going to make things even better or worse, right? But uh, I was like, look at this message I got. And it was, we were talking, and I guess it was probably Jeff's cancer. And, you know, let's give Jeff credit, right? Jeff, and I've told this story, so Breaking Kayfabe, I'm sure I've said it, Luke can vouch, I've said this a dozen, if not more times, Jeff had cancer and Jeff's biggest fear, and I, I talked with Jeff's wife once, and you know the, the podcast was so important to Jeff, and when I talked with his wife, she said, you know, he's really devastated because he he always wanted to do something like this, and now that he's doing it, he's fearful it's going to be taken away from him. Like the podcast was that important to Jeff. And Jeff is in the hospital. Jeff is hooked up to all types of IVs and other shits. He's going through, you know, chemo, radiation, whatever. And he's fucking recording episodes from his hospital bed as he's in a life or death battle with cancer. Let me interject too. Jeff didn't just have cancer; he had lymphoma. That's like the cleanup hitter of cancers. Uh, but Barry, you said something that I mean shows me what a dummy I am. I'm listening to the final episode of Breaking Kayfabe, and you're like, you know, yeah, my brother had cancer, and I'm like, wow. Jeff Bowdrin had cancer, and your brother had cancer. That must have been such a hard time in your life. So I didn't. I didn't say that. Um, you you did you did but you were referring to Jeff as your brother. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. See, you're as dense as I am. That's why we I, like. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that goes along with the age. <laughs> Literally, John. Ah. I was at one point a fairly witty guy. Now it's like you've got to spell everything out for me <laughs> so I understand because I'm I'm quickly slipping. It it was it was. Uh, look, let's you know. I used to joke a lot on the podcast. I would say, "Oh yeah, I'm living in the basement." I was fucking living in my basement. Why my wife had the bedroom, and I. Uh, I had the basement. And at the same time, I'm watching my marriage dissolve. My marriage was over, I should say. I wasn't even watching it dissolve. I knew my marriage was over. And at the same time, my my closest friend, and I don't that's the beauty. Like I don't consider Jeff my closest friend. Jeff is my brother. Jeff and I had, and I'm not, I won't, but Jeff and I had this really made us close too. Jeff and I had this big argument about a year after we started breaking kayfabe and it was on a sunday night and he was mad about something and i wasn't budging on something and we hung up the phone and i was irritated and i know jeff was irritated and 15 minutes later jeff calls me and goes and this was the night he goes i didn't want to go to bed thinking that there's going to be this issue between us and I was so fucking taken with that moment 
that he said that to me, that he cared enough about our friendship, that he thought enough of our friendship, our relationship, that he didn't want to even go to bed. He wanted to hash it out. We hashed it out. And I don't think we've had a harsh word since. And you know, I, every, I don't want to use a cliche, but you know, that old thing about, you know, you can't pick your family, but et cetera, you pick your free. Exactly. I, I'm fortunate to have Jeff in my life. Jeff has got my back. I have Jeff's back and he's, you know, he's always been there for me at the end of the day. He's always been there. So long story short, which really wasn't that short, long story, long story. I was going through, uh, a tough time that my marriage was over. Sadly, I was still living in the same house. Sadly, my daughter was still living in the same house. My ex and I were not fighters. So we weren't having screaming matches, but there was a lot of silence. And uh, it was a very uncomfortable situation. At the same time, Jeff was fighting cancer. I will say that's where Breaking Kayfabe lifted me. That's where Breaking Kayfabe put me on its shoulders and and really got me through what was kind of a really shitty time right there. So, yeah, uh, I, I will always be grateful for the fact that Jeff wanted me to do this with him. And I will always be grateful to our listeners that shared their lives with us as well and and told us how we helped them, inadvertently, how we had helped them through really serious times. That meant a lot to me and still does and will for the rest of my life. That that totally makes sense. And, you know, and again, I I get it that, you know, I mean, after three hundred episodes, you know, you just get you just get tired. And there's I I totally, you know, a hundred percent believe that there was no heat, there was no killer backstory. Well you would know like, and let's be honest, John, you would know too if there was. It's not like we're a small family here. Yeah. You would know if there was. There's 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 zip heat. Zip. No, exactly. And I can see someone saying, you know, hey, 300 episodes, that's enough. I have, you know, I was thinking about at one point, okay, is 100 episodes enough? Have these, these people heard enough of what I have to say? But I still enjoy doing it. I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. Just if you do something long enough, you're going to get burned out. And Barry, it sounds like that's all there is to it. Yeah, it is. and I, But I will tell you one of the after effects is there is a little bit of uh, postpartum. I guess it wouldn't be postpartum, but there is a little bit of maybe PTSD. I was a little bummed out uh, the first couple of weeks. Now, we still record at least once a week to do the Patreon, but there was a period where I was like, shit, no new show dropped. Uh, maybe I should call Jeff. And I, you know, then I quickly came to my senses and was like, no, we're not calling anybody. We're going to ride this out. But yeah, you'll see. It's, it's very bizarre. The hardest episodes we did, John, were maybe the last five. Oh, and yeah. yeah, exactly. The last five were really difficult. And the couple of weeks following, I I felt a little weird. I think I'm in a good, a pretty good groove right now, though. That that's good to hear because I know you know if and when I ever give this up, there will be a void in my life. I'll probably never completely give it up, but you know the the, the week to week grind. And I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. I'm not complaining. I'm not feeling burned out uh i mean we've been doing this for over five years probably five times i was like oh man i gotta record and i don't want to and that's a pretty good ratio in my in my view but barry thank you for finally coming on i'm glad to have you here finally get this done it was a really good show thank you 
Yeah, and I got to say, I uh, I just had the time of my life. It is, you know, you it, we, to talk to you two guys, which are, you know, it's just like talking to two old friends. And John, uh, you know, I've known you for several years, so you kind of are an older friend at that point. But this was a blast. I'm humbled. I'm honored. And anytime you ever want me back, I would be more than happy to come and clutter up your airwaves. <laughs> Thank you. And that sound was thunder, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah, and I, I, I like I said, I that's what I want Stick to Wrestling to be. Just you know, me and Steve, or maybe me and one other person. Steve's in and out, just having a good time talking wrestling, and just you know, you guys get to listen in. Steve, I want to thank you for taking the time on it to be on Stick to Wrestling. Well, thank you, and I want to pay homage to Barry and Jeff as I'm as a fan of that show. Uh, uh, I give them credit because uh, I think all these wrestling shows they set out to become wrestling shows, and they you know a lot of them are great, but their show they set out to be be a wrestling show, and they kind of transcended that. They became a lifestyle show, and that that's really saying something. They they be, they really transformed what they were doing into something much more than what their original goal was. Well, I mean, if you go back and listen to the first, I don't know, 10 episodes of Stick to Wrestling, it is completely different now <laughs> than it was then. And that's just because, you know, you're you're still in the process of, of figuring out, you know, there's an, you have an idea of what you want something to be, and then you start doing it. And, it, you know, it turns into a completely different thing. But anyway, I want to thank uh, Brian Last for giving us this forum. I want to thank everyone who listened this week and we'll be back next week. And when I say thank you for listening, I really, really mean it. And uh, I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great jo- the great job he does producing this podcast. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.